Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of cities have murals. Detroit has whales, you can see in part from near Comerica Park. Holland at 16th Street, of course. Windmill and tulips. But if you go to downtown Bay City, where the rest of my family lives, there's an interesting, maybe unlikely, mural downtown. If you park to go to Crazy Quarters Arcade, a bit of an old-fashioned arcade with aisles and aisles, a whole floor of pinball, and, and look across on the side of the building where the city market was, there is Madonna, who was born in Bay City, so they have a bit of an interesting relationship with the most famous person born there, who hasn't always said the nicest things, but then does, and, and she's also maybe one of the most famous people alive from the state of Michigan. Well, if you've been uh, reading along in Counterfeit God's book, uh, you'll notice this chapter that we deal with today, The Idol of Success. She said something in an interview a number of years ago that actually is very, very honest and to the point about this very thing. She said this, she said, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That honesty uh, from someone as famous and well-known uh, as Madonna it says a lot. And it says a lot about the idol of success, which tells you this. If you accomplish enough, you matter. If you get good enough grades, if you graduate, or if you graduate from this school and not that school, or if you get this job and not that job, or if you make the sale, or if you get noticed on the project, or if you win the big game, or if you're the MVP of your team as you win the big game, you matter. Except that feeling only lasts for so long. The, call it, peace given to your heart by the idol of success is masking your and my desire for a true and lasting peace. And the idol of success is quite demanding. That is, not long after you, you've, call it, made a sacrifice to it, done something and proven your worth, that you matter, it will demand another and it will demand another. If you check out long before the end today, I want you to know that Jesus wants to be your true peace. He wants to be your success. His life becomes your life by faith. Everything he has earned by his life, his death, his resurrection, his true sonship with the Father. He gives that to you. He wants to be your success. If you are in Christ, you already have all of the approval and all of the worth you could ever want and you could ever ask for. And yet, for a lot of us, success still beckons. And it probably is, perhaps, arguably, the most American substitute God of them all. It is the idol or, of our day, or some have called it the acceptable addiction of our day. 
That is, we are a society addicted to success and achievement. And it seems that Christians are just as susceptible as non-Christians to falling into its trap. Another quote from the book says, Success offers a false sense of security in which we think being successful will keep us safe from the troubles of life in a way that only God can. We believe that success can prove, we can prove our worth to others, to ourselves, or even to God. And so a sign that we are bowing to the idol of success might be that if we easily, unthinkingly, sacrifice our time, our money, our family, our health, sacrifice anything to get it. I have to achieve, I have to succeed, I'll sacrifice anything. I'll work around the clock, sacrificing relationships and health, whatever, if, if your job demands it or if the project demands it. If you must be the, the best at, at a sport or a subject or at work, then you will stop at nothing to get there. Well, today we get to meet Naaman. Naaman is the Syrian commander of the army, call it second in charge to the king. And reading through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, it sticks out because he's not an Israelite. He's from further north of Israel. He's from enemy territory. But we hear he's a great man of, of valor. He's successful in every way. But still, for Naaman... Having all the success in the world, all the connections in the world, the right-hand man of the king, all the wealth he could want, all the power he believed, like we often do, is that having all those things, being successful, would open the right doors to get what he really wanted. But he found out that it didn't work that way. You see, Naaman was successful outwardly, but inwardly, his body was wasting away. We're told he has leprosy, a terrible skin disease where his body would slowly uh, rot and waste away until he was disfigured and, and crippled and would die. And in the process, be alienated from his family and probably everyone else in his life because they didn't want to be near and possibly contract it as well. And so this powerful, strong, athletic warrior with all of his armor on was underneath falling apart. This consummate insider, powerful, wealthy, connected, was now becoming an outsider. But what does the story say at the beginning? It says here in 2 Kings 5, raiding bands so from the north, Syria, went south to capture, plunder, and kill. That's what they do. And then they had taken, says this young girl from Israel, and so she had served Naaman's wife as a slave. And then she tells her master, well, if only that he would go see the, the prophet Elisha down in Samaria, he would cure him. Which means Naaman's out of options. He's tried everything and it doesn't work, right? All of the Syrian gods, nothing happening there, I'm sure. He's tried it already. There's no healing to be found. So this girl suggests way down in Israel, there's... The prophet Elisha. And, you know, he's a bit weird, but hey, aren't they all? It's okay. Go see him. So Naaman does, which 
shows how desperate he is that he's going to go to uh, an area that they've clearly conquered to some degree or had success with, and he's, and he's going to show up and try to get healed. But he does what most people would try to do, and that is use his resources, use his connections, use his success to get what he wants most, which is healing, so he can be more successful with a, with a physically strong, healed body. So his king, who's very happy with him, sends his letter, official from the king, uh, and all sorts of wealth. But the letter's saying how deserving, how great he was, and then sends lots of money. It says 10 talents of silver. That's about 700 pounds of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold. That's 130 pounds of gold. And 10 pairs of clothing in a day when most people owned one, maybe two. And so Naaman expected, because of the wealth, because of the letter, the king of Israel would just uh, suddenly have to snap his fingers, get Elisha, and order Elisha to cure him. But he didn't know how God actually works. What Naaman didn't know is that you can't manipulate God. You can't manipulate God to, to earn his blessing or to earn his love because our God works by grace, not by rewards. And so Naaman was, you might say, on his way to meet the true God, one that you can't just do enough good for and you'll get what you really want. He comes and finds you by grace. So Naaman goes, takes all of this entourage, horses, chariots, carry all the gold, all the servants, protection, you name it. They go all the way down and get to King it's Jehoram at the time, and they go read the letter and, and make the appeal. And the story says, when they read the letter, the king reads it and does what? Tears his clothes. Oh, no. For two reasons. One, he says, well, don't you know that the true God doesn't work this way? You can't control God. He's not, he's not a pet on a leash or in a cage. You, can, you can't manipulate him. You can't control him. And he says, am I God? Can I kill? Can I bring to life? But he's also thinking, oh, no. The king's trying to make war with us because we can't do this. So Naaman thought because of his success, his achievement, his status, all the, the wealth that he brought, he could get what he really, really, really wanted. But he was about to learn that our loving God doesn't exactly work that way. So what happens? As this is going on at the king's palace, somehow Elisha receives word down the street, and he's lying at home on the couch. He says, ah, send him to me. And the story says, all of the horses and chariots that Naaman went to Elisha's house, you can imagine, not a big area, not the big of a city, and so the king's palace, yeah, it's a palace, but it's not huge, and I'm guessing Elisha lives in pretty meager quarters, think a, you know, single wide trailer today might be even big for him, and that all these horses and chariots and clomp, 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 clomp over to Elisha's house, and they knock on the door, and Elisha doesn't come to the door, Right? He says, uh, I'm busy. March Madness is on. And he sends his servant, Gehazi, to the door. I go deal with it. And Naaman's probably going, I can see you in the window. You're right there. Why not? Like, he won't. So you can see the disrespect to this grand, mighty, successful guy, Naaman. The king can't do anything about it. Elijah says, send him to me. But then he doesn't go to the door. He stays on the couch, sends the servant to the door. And the servant goes, and 
you know, Naaman's like, come on, what's, what's the matter? And, this, and the servant says, well, uh, he picked Purdue to win the whole thing. So go easy on him. Give him, give him some time. And then Elisha, you know, he gets messages shuttle, and he says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. And then Naaman gets mad. He goes away in a rage. Why? He says it. He says, I thought you would come out here and, and stand and call on God and, and do something fancy, wave your hand over the leprosy and say official words and you'd heal me. But the Jordan River? Are you kidding me? I have better water next to my house than all of it down here. I have open skin sores and you want me to go swim in Lake Mac? Are you kidding me? I came all the way here. Do you see all the stuff I brought? All the horses, all the chair, all, all the gold. Do you see who I am, what I've done, how successful I am, and this is how you treat me? And he leaves fuming. And then later we're told it's his servants that reason with him. His servants say, "What well, you know, if you think about it, good sir, <laughs> Elisha did say the words, you would be healed, didn't he? If you go wash in the... Jordan River, I know it's gross, but he did say you'd be healed. You see, Naaman expected Elisha to take the money and do something fancy, but no great thing like that happened. Go wash in the filthy Jordan River. Anybody can do that. That's not special at all. How often in your life has God not acted the way you wanted him to? How often had you hoped that God would do something great, like Naaman had, give enough money, do enough of the right things, live enough of the good life, and maybe uh, God will you know, say the right words and something big and fancy will happen and everything will be the way you really want it to be. Well, for us and for Naaman, he was finding out that God operates by grace. And as a God of, of grace who is far beyond us and wiser and kinder and more loving than us, we do have to trust God's ways even if they don't make sense and even if they don't look very mighty. And often God works through normal, everyday events and things that are so normal that we might miss them, like being cleansed in water. Baptismal water is any other old water, but connected with the word of God and his promises, do you believe that it can cleanse your soul and connect you to Jesus? Or ordinary bread and wine that we gather around it might look so normal and simple that you might miss that God has promised to do so much more when he says, given and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And so Naaman, humbled eventually, goes, and he washes in the river. And you have to imagine it, in order for him to bathe in the Jordan River, he had to take all of his armor off. So he had to take all of the signs of his success and his importance off. With every piece of clinking metal armor, that was a sign of his success. All of the insignia that showed his high rank, all of, his, all of it, everything that told the world that he mattered and that he was successful, he had to take off and come simply to the dirty water that God made holy and he was healed. 
about us too. However we have come to Jesus and however he has found us, it isn't by any layers or armor of success or achievement. We've all come in with nothing and gone home with everything. Whether it was as a baby being baptized and washed and cleansed, or or as an adult who wrestled with the message of the gospel, however you have found your way to Jesus, or more correctly, however he found his way to you, we came with nothing, yet received everything. Now there's one more thing in this story that makes it even better to me. How did Naaman get from up north in Syria to here naked in the Jordan River in Israel? And he's probably wondering that too at some moment washing. How did I get here from the king's palace to here with all my armor around in this dirty water? How how did he even get this harebrained idea? Do you remember? So at the beginning of the story, it was that little girl mentioned. Says this slave girl was an Israelite who was taken captive when the Syrian army, commanded by whom? Naaman, came through, and as a spoil of war, she was taken captive and later serves Naaman's wife in her house. So that means Naaman himself is responsible for taking a human being captive and enslaving her in his house and abusing her and potentially killing her entire family or at least enslaving the rest of them. And it's her. And despite all that, she knows, one, that God is still good. What a lesson. She still believes that she said there is a prophet in Israel. She still believes that God is good and powerful and capable. And then she tells Naaman. She shares the life-giving word that she has. Now, she doesn't have to. And how many of us would be tempted not to? Your captor, the one responsible for all your suffering and all your misery, is sick and he's going to die a painful, slow death. She could have loved every minute of it. But she forgives him. She has to. I mean, You would only tell him if you've forgiven him. And she forgives all of the evil caused by him, all of the suffering that she's ever been through. She actually forgave him in order to tell him that I know where the true God is. I know where true healing is and true life is. Can you imagine how much that cost her? So I know there's only one hero of the Bible, and that's Jesus. But some of these stories, uh, someone else in some ways is a stand-in acting like Jesus, and she's the one in this story that I think is the most important character. She was the one who is mistreated, abused, and stolen, and still trusts God, and then tells her captor where to find true hope and healing. And for you too. Anytime you've forgiven someone, it is always costly, isn't it? Forgiveness costs There is never forgiveness without a cost. It costs you not getting even with someone or not holding it against them for the rest of their life or not sometimes getting your money back or whatever it is. Forgiveness always costs. And you know that the Bible says the greatest costly forgiveness was done by God himself. 
Jesus, the true son, the true servant. Jesus is the, the most successful person to ever live. And he was the one who was wronged and harmed and abused and mistreated. And he kept going to the cross to deal with every evil ever done and to take that cost himself to pay it and to forgive you and me and every evil ever done on this planet. You see, on the cross, God was paying the price himself so that you could be washed and cleansed and brought in to his family. And so, though it might look strange, which God's ways often do, the most successful thing ever done in the history of humankind was actually God himself in Jesus dying on a cross. Because that success reunites you and me to God and gives us a life worth living with a clean heart and a new life. And so no amount of success in our earthly life will get us closer to God because he's already come as close as he possibly can to you in Jesus. On his cross, God's love was poured out for you that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for you. And when you and I come in with nothing, that is receive the forgiveness of Jesus, you begin to realize that his life becomes your life, his success is yours, and gives you the sure footing of identity and meaning that you can't get anywhere else. You don't need anything else to be successful. Because Jesus is your identity, he is your success, and he is the true peace you've been looking for.